Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name's Mike. Hi, Mike. Hey, babe. How are you? Doing pretty well. You want a podcast together? We really should. What do you think about it? I think so. And let's make it a weekly thing where we talk about some true crime that you've chosen and that you've researched quite a bit and then deliver to our lovely audience. How about that? Should we call ourselves the Crime and Coffee Couple? Well, we do love coffee and we are a couple and um, it's about crime. crime. Yeah, usually a crime. I mean, maybe like 1% aren't an actual crime and maybe a missing person or whatever it might be. Maybe they ran away. Who knows? But it should be a crime that they are not found, basically. So I say we do it. Yeah, let's do it. So well. Welcome. Welcome to one and all. What is this episode like 100 something? 102. 102-ish. We didn't have like a huge uh, party for episode 102. No, we didn't. It crossed my mind. Our friends Till Death Do Us Part kind of like really made a big deal. I'm like, that's smart. They made an extravaganza. Yeah. I mean, brilliant. So And we didn't because we are lame as hell. Lame as hell. You're listening to us. We are lame as hell. This L on my forehead could be lame or loser. Either one describes us. Right. Absolutely. And that's okay. That's who we are. (laughs) So if you identify with us, that's okay. We own it. Yeah. So uh, how's your week going so far? Well, we had some very good news this week. Our puppy Poppy, who we mentioned, I believe, on last week's episode that I had found a mass on her gums. She was yawning one day two weeks ago. And I was like, what the hell is that? So, of course, I lifted her lip and I could see a very significant mass on her little mouth because she's so tiny. You couldn't see it by just looking at her. But Mm. if you lifted her lip, it was like some kind of growth on her gum. Yeah. So we got her in right away. She had surgery a week after we got her in. And then we found out Wednesday that it was negative for cancer. So... Oh, I almost cried from relief. Yeah, when you called me, I was on a business trip and uh, I was just like so worried about her. I'm not used to being so worried about the animals just because usually they're fine. But this was like a big deal. And man, Poppy means the world to you, especially and all of us. But all of us like she's your special buddy. She really is. I love her so much. But you were out of town the day she had surgery. So of course, I was trying to keep my nerves in check because our kids were here. But our daughter came with me along for the day because she was in surgery like all day. And I told Reese, our daughter, that she was our my emotional support dog that day. Honestly, I was kind of glad I was gone. And I was like, I don't want to have to deal with it and bringing her in. And she's going to be have her whole gums cut open and stuff. And it was ugh, such a... Yeah. Horror. She's like four pounds, right? Four, five. Five yeah. pounds. So she's so tiny. Like just anything to her is like such a big deal. She's just so sweet. She's laying right next to me right now. I just love her so much. Yeah. So she's good. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, Other than that, our kids started back at school. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, already? And then, yeah, they'll be out a week earlier than everybody else. So, yeah. You know, that's all right. They up started. north, I have the same conversations with co- uh, cousins up there and such. They're like, already? I'm like, yep. Same yep. time every year, same mid-August. Year. Yep. So it's exciting. It's good to have them back. Our son's been busy this summer, but our daughter gets restless. And I hate the word bored. It's like, don't say you're bored, please. She only said it like once. She said it a few times. A few times. She doesn't say it to you. She says it to me. Ah, uh, because she knows I'll just be like, okay, good luck. <laughs> Whereas I, I have this sense of guilt. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Fucking tap dance for you? I swear, the best thing for kids to do is be bored. Like, uh, I, I, I hated it when I was a kid. I agree, guys. You know, if you're young, listen to this. I get it. It sucks, but it ultimately like releases your brain to like think of things on your own. Yeah, be creative. And she was like, she got into making bracelets, and she's a laid back kid. I'm not saying she's a pain in the butt, but it was was time for them to go back i gave her some ideas uh to try to sell stuff at school i don't know if that's legal or not i don't know i was telling her how i used to sell like gumballs and you know blow pops and all that stuff i'm like if you think of something you can sell like you can make like 30 bucks a week selling bracelets or something yeah her bracelets i'm like that's 120 bucks a month like in your pocket and she's just like oh okay get the wheels turning entrepreneurship yeah yeah so um so if you're 
we're ready to go. One more thing I want to mention. Uh, my friends and I got to go out and see each other, which doesn't happen a whole lot anymore because we're all so busy. And uh, we went to a local grocery store, which I've mentioned before. Yeah, you have. We have the Publix grocery stores out this way. Yeah. And uh, so it, just imagine your biggest grocery store chain. That's where we went. And they have a bar at the <laughs> at the Publix. Which is so funny. It is funny. And uh, they don't allow tipping, which is fantastic. Being a cheap person that I am, um, they don't allow tipping. They charge you for exactly. And they're like, okay, just here you go. And the beers are like five bucks. So you might be wondering, Mike, I don't think you drink. And you're right. I had kombucha, uh, which is fantastic that they have freaking kombucha available at a bar. So I'm always like, yeah, let's go hang out. So we got out there. Uh, Some of my friends stayed a little bit later. I think they closed out the bar. When you say a little bit later, about five hours later. Yeah, yeah. They closed out the bar at (laughs) At, at the grocery store. store. And then, uh, yeah, I went to another place, I guess. And I was like, okay, well, I was like, I I got up at 630 and... did a workout lifted weights and they're probably like f you buddy f you and that is the thing i appreciate the most from stopping drinking i know you always say we stopped in september but it was actually october oh i'm surprised you didn't Um, correct me i said that like seven times yeah well sometimes i try to bite my tongue but you couldn't (laughs) so um it'll be almost 300 days in very soon and i don't miss it at all i don't miss feeling like crap i don't miss the anxiety which i it was real for me um, I'm one of those girls that when I get together with a group, I'm like, oh, I'll only have two drinks. And then I have start having fun. I'm talking and then it just keeps flowing. And I end up waking up the next day feeling like absolute hell. So I said, you know what? I'm 44 years old. I'm done with this. I will say um, the only reason I like to drink was the buzz. I, I will say if I miss anything, it'd have to be the buzz and the social aspect. I'm still a social butterfly. Like I, I proved to myself going out with my friends this time. I was I had a great time. It seemed like they were all you know enjoying my stories or whatever well of course because when you're with somebody or if you're with a group and it's only alcohol that makes them fun then they're probably not fun so we've had many a get-togethers without alcohol and i have a a great time you know why because the people we're spending time with are great and we're gonna have a girl or i'm gonna have a girl's trip coming up in um like a month and you know we used to always drink our wine together and have a great time but i would end up kind of ruining part of our trip because I felt so anxious. So, well, now you're going to have a great time and just won't have the uh, anxiety. Right. I love these girls. They're awesome, fun girls. And I'm going to have fun even if I'm not drinking wine while they enjoy it. And they're pretty attractive, too. I they are say. very cute. So send a lot of pictures when you're out there. I will make sure I do it. Okay. I appreciate that. All right. Ready to get going? Let's do this. So this is a very sad story, as they all are. But this is the murder. I'm sorry, the murder of Katie Autry. And this is a listener suggestion from Nina. So thank you so much, Nina. We do appreciate it. If you want to suggest something, um, Instagram is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Or become a patron and send us a message. Right. We get them. So it's greatly appreciated. So it was the early morning hours of Sunday, May 4th, 2003, when the fire alarm began blaring throughout the halls of Hugh Poland Hall, which is a dorm on the campus of Western Kentucky University or WKU. I got to say that's Star Wars Day, May the 4th. Oh, it is. I thought that while I typed it. So you're in good company. Sorry, continue. So since this was a common issue within the dorms, whether it was from someone falsely pulling the alarm, probably some, you know, 18 year old drunkard that just had the wise idea to do it or from like a random bag of burned popcorn, the students did not take it seriously. They didn't budge from their beds until the RA filtered through the halls, knocking on each of their doors, making sure they were evacuating the building. I'm sorry, what college was this when I cut you off? Western Kentucky University. And it's a Sunday. So obviously there was a Saturday night before this. So I'm sure people were out late. They were probably drinking and they're hungover and tired and whatnot. The last thing they want to do 
is go outside and stand in the dark. So as they sleepily filed out of the building and into the chilly night air, most just assumed it was a false alarm. Firefighters responded to the dorm within three minutes, and as students continued to wait outside, rumors started to filter around that this wasn't a false alarm. Something happened, and specifically something happened in room 214, and the word on the street was it was to the blonde girl. And many people knew immediately that this blonde girl was... Katie Autry. So, you know, it's dawning on them that this is this is real. Something went down. So Melissa Kay or Katie Autry was born on June 10th, 1984 in the tiny town of Rosine, Kentucky. It's so tiny. They say if you blink your eyes, you don't know you just drove through it. Maybe one stoplight. Um, there was a population of 100 people when I checked wow. recently. That's like basically families, mm-hmm. like three families you exactly. know, with cousins and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So initially, Katie lived with her grandparents, her mother, Donna Autry, and her younger sister, Lisa. But when she was somewhere around eight years old, she and her sister were placed in the foster care system. Her mother was struggling mentally, um, so she wasn't able to care for them. Katie's mother, um, or I'm sorry, Katie and Lisa moved around homes until they finally found more stability with a couple named Jim and Shirley Inman. So they moved up at this point to the Inman's house in Pellville, Kentucky. Life was more structured and strict because, you know, in this household, they wanted to keep them on track. They were a very church-going family. So Katie, you know, had to follow a set of rules. And, uh, you know, and she did. They wanted to just keep them out of trouble. But despite being in this foster home, Katie never did lose track with her family. She still maintained her biological family relationships, even her mom, which, you know, I think is a good thing. What happened to her dad, did you say? They didn't say anything about him. Hmm. So Katie... Must not been part of the picture. No. Katie thrived in high school. She was very determined. She was a great student. She participated in a lot of things. She was a great cheerleader. She was in multiple clubs. So she was a standout cheerleader because she was what is referred to as the flyer. And this is the, you know, a small statured person that they could easily put on top of the pyramid, toss up in the air. (laughs) Flip around, that whole thing, yeah. Yeah, it's dangerous. Yeah. So, you know, obviously this is the person that's in the air during a stunt. So Katie was described as quirky, fun-loving. She was said to be one of the funniest people in the room. She earned a college scholarship from Kentucky Association of PEP Organization sponsors based on the recommendation from her teachers and coaches. Katie's cheerleading coach remembers how determined she was. If something didn't come easy to her, she would just work hard to do her best and accomplish what it was she wanted. So she, her coach, felt that Katie was amazing. She had overcome so much adversity in her life. Obviously, it wasn't easy to be removed from her family and go live amongst various homes because she was close with her biological family. And the interviews that I watched, it was her cousins and things like that. They were very close. Like blood cousins. Blood cousins. Wow. Yes. So, um, you know, her her coaches and teachers really saw how exceptional she was. Well, you know, we also have these stories where it's like, uh, oh, and they had a tough upbringing and this is why some of this happened. It's like somebody like this had a horrible upbringing because, you know, their mom had mental issues and, you know, still wanted to be close to their family, but were living with another family Mm -hmm. as, you know, an orphan kind of and a very strict home. And, you know, she still made it work because she worked hard. And they always say, you know, kids thrive on structure. So I'm sure it was difficult when you didn't know what was going to happen. So as Katie moved towards college, she chose to go to Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, Kentucky, 
in order to stay close to her biological family, and they were so proud of her. Katie was actually the first member of her family to attend college. She was actually only the second member to graduate high school. So this was exceptional. Wow. Yeah. It was her goal to become a dental hygienist, which makes us think of our lovely favorite cousin, Lex. So she wanted to do that. Also a patron. She wanted to make more of her life than what she had growing up. So freshman year at WSU began in the fall of 2002. 18-year-old Katie immediately fell in love with the independence of her college life. Katie and her roommate, Danica Jackson, lived in Hugh Poland Hall. They became close and often attended college parties together. Katie lived on the second floor of the dorm. She was well-liked by all of her floor mates. It seems like she was just one of those people that, if you knew her, you liked her. Yeah, blonde girl, you know, peppy, funny. Funny. A funny person is just, like, worth their weight in gold. Yeah, I feel like funny people are hard to come by sometimes. Sometimes. So, as You're lucky because you're married to one, so, I mean. Just hilarious. Yeah. So as freshman year continued, Katie made the difficult decision to remove herself from the foster system in order to truly solidify her independence. So what does that do? I'm sure you're about to tell me. Well, it does a lot. Um, Now she's no longer tied to answering to anybody. That's what she wanted because, of course, she's going off to college. She's liking this independence and she just wants she wants it fully. So she's pretty much no no longer a uh, member of the Inman family. I don't know if they were going to say disown her they didn't get into that but it was a huge change in the fact that she lost her college funding because the foster system gave college funding so financially i mean that was a big decision that she made yeah because now all of a sudden she's going to need to work her tail off to make ends meet in order to pay for school or take out tons of student loans loans, which are horrible Mm -hmm. so it was a big financial change it meant that katie needed to focus on working at this point she changed her student status to part-time she reduced her schedule to eight hours in the second semester so that she could take various jobs to pay for her schooling that's how badly she wanted to just be independent i wonder what it was there had to be more to the story i don't know it's it wasn't there Mm -hmm. so katie got a job at a place called freshens it was a local food and smoothie shop in downing university center her smiling face became a fixture there she also began dancing at the bowling green gentleman's club called tattletales whoa Her family talked with her about this decision. They were concerned for her safety, rightly so. But, you know, Katie was doing things to make ends meet. She was doing her best. And oftentimes, you could make a lot of money doing what what you're doing. I was going to say, there had to be, like, maybe it wasn't something in the family, but she was making so much at the Gentleman's Club, she was probably fine. She hadn't been working there long. I believe she only ended up working there for maybe two weeks at the time of the story. I mean, you hear of some girls clearing, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So you get, like, the favorites that are always coming in and just giving you their full paycheck, basically. Right. So on April 30th, Katie attended a campus fashion show. It was called Summer Madness. At the last minute, she was asked to model some of the clothes. She had such a blast showing off the clothes as she strutted her stuff down the runway. So she was just doing her best in life to make ends meet. So on Saturday, May 3rd, 2003, Katie and her roommate Danica started their night by pre-gaming. So keep in mind, this is the Saturday night that led into the early morning hours of where I began with the fire alarm going off in the dorm room. So just make note of that. So they were pre-gaming, and anyone who's gone to college knows all about pre-gaming. You start off drinking at one place, and you do that before you move to your final party destination. Or the bar, because you don't want to spend five Mm -hmm. bucks per beer, ten bucks per beer, because you can get drunk for a lot cheaper in your dorm. Yes. 
So from there, they were going to head off to the senior send-off party at the Pi Kappa Alpha or Pike frat house. Hey, I know a Pike. You do. You was actually one of your roommates. Mm -hmm. So the party was said to be small, maybe about 50 guests who stayed most of the night. Some people did filter in and out. They were saying like the yard wasn't necessarily fenced, so people could freely come and go as they wished. Obviously, there's a front door too, but I'm just saying that about 50 people were steady at that party. So by the time Katie arrived, she was already intoxicated from her pre-gaming. That's why you'd pre-game. Mm-hmm. Some would say that when Katie did overindulge, she became very emotional and tearful, as many of us do. Alcohol doesn't always bring out the best in us. Mike, don't look at me with a smirk. I just say some of our friends used to ask, please, Allison, don't cry tonight. <laughs> So not, that, that's it. Uh, well, I'm an emotional person in general. Right. So so Danica, her roommate, felt that when Katie was intoxicated, she did need to be closely supervised. When they arrived to the Pike House, Katie spotted a guy that she had been involved with. His name was Maurice. She asked him to dance. He wasn't into it. He declined. This caused Katie to become very upset. Those that knew the relationship between Katie and Maurice would say that Katie was much more interested in something serious, where Maurice was basically just having some college fun. So, um, you know, they weren't on the same page exactly. So she became belligerent toward Maurice. She actually did slap him. At this point, the host of the party said, hey, you got to go. You're causing a scene. And you just uh, caused a crime. Mm -hmm. Right. Assault. So... Um, Katie's roommate Danica she was having fun she was not ready to leave the party she found a frat pledge that served as a designated driver and asked him to drive Katie home this was between 1 30 and 2 a.m so now we are moving on to the early morning hours of May 4th so Danica thanked the driver promised to call Katie later at 2 30 a.m as promised this is about a half hour to an hour after Katie would have gotten back So Danica calls to check in and make sure that Katie was okay. Katie answered and told her that there was a guy in her room and she just wanted to go to sleep. So when Danica asked who this guy was, Katie said she didn't know. Danica asked to speak with this person who got on the phone and informed her that he was the one that was driving her home. He simply walked her up to her room to ensure her safety. So as the call was wrapping up, he reassured her not to worry, and Danica heard the voice of another male. She was unable to hear what he was saying. Um, You know, and that night, Danica wasn't coming back to the dorm. She was actually staying somewhere else with a friend. She wasn't overly concerned. She just assumed her friend was going to fall asleep, sleep it off, and, you know, she would see her in the morning. So about a half hour later at 4.08 a.m., this is when the fire alarm went off at Hugh Poland Hall. So as first responders entered the building, they quickly located the source of the fire on the second floor, specifically in room 214, where Katie and Danica lived. Obviously, Danica wasn't there. When they entered the room, they noticed that the sprinkler system had already extinguished the fire. They noticed something glistening on the bed. They quickly realized that they were looking at a person's arm and took in the sight of a badly beaten and burned body of a female. And this was the blonde girl that they all heard about as the students were standing in front of the dorm. How horrific. Oh, so sad. When they saw her chest rising, it was clear that she was still alive. Oh, my God. This person was Katie, and firefighters found her shirt wrapped around her face and a rag wrapped around the sprinkler system. Because, of course, they're trying to put the pieces together as they're entering this room to 
Did somebody fall asleep with a cigarette? Was there a candle that went off? But then they're seeing very suspicious things. Oh, well, totally in 180. Like something crazy happened here that we right. can't wrap our brains around right now. But this girl needs to be helped. Yes. So it was very tragic when the firefighters took in the scene and realized that Katie's body had actually been the source of the fire. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? No. That is so horrifically terrible. Terrible. Someone had actually set her on fire while she was still alive. Who does that? Like, who has it in their brain that think that that's even a possibility? Like, remote poss- That's insane. To set a human being on fire. Oh, my God. Uh, unbelievable. So as her badly burned body was carried from the dorm and the perimeter of the building was cleared, she managed to say, take me home. The firefighters placed his own, or the firefighter placed his own oxygen mask on Katie until EMS could arrive. It was later determined that things had been taken, or things, yeah, some things had been taken from the dorm room, but it was believed just to be an attempt to make it look like a staged robbery. So the Inmans called Katie's family at 5 a.m. and told them that she had been in an accident. It sounds like, you know, what people were being told wasn't exactly clear what happened. So her family are like, what the hell happened? They're all coming down to the Bowling Green Medical Center. Well, yeah, at this point, they probably don't know that she's been beaten and stuff. Right. And, like they know there was a fire in the dorm and she got taken in. And, you know, you assume that it's something, you know, some kind of smoke inhalation. And maybe she got burned a little bit. Not that she was set ablaze. Right. So the doctors told them that Katie was found with a towel tied around her throat and mouth. And this is when the family is realizing that someone had done this to her. And I mean, they were horrified. You come in like being like, you know, worried about her well-being, obviously. And then it's like somebody purposely did this to our girl. Yes. And the severity of the burns indicated that this was not an accidental burn. It was also noted that Katie had three to four shallow cuts on the left side of her neck. It was clear that she had been struck with force to her right eye, which was swollen shut. The cord of the curling, a cord of a curling iron was wrapped around her neck in addition to the t-shirt they found. They said that her, the severity of her burns were so bad though, that the nerve endings would have been damaged. So Technically, she she may not have been feeling pain, which is, you know, something to think about in the midst of this horrific tragedy. But, you know, her family is there and they're seeing her and they can't touch her. They're like, you cannot touch her. Well, a human reaction is you want to give kisses and hugs and all that stuff. And it's just like, you can't because of what? Infection? Infections. Yeah. So it was just awful, just awful. So it was very clear to see that Katie had been tortured before she had been set on fire. At this point, she was in a, in a medically induced coma. She was being prepared to be airlifted to Nashville. Because of the severity of her condition, police weren't unable to get any information from Katie because she was in a coma. They couldn't say, who did this to you? Well, yeah, she can't hear you. Right. So she wasn't able to give them that information. So now it's on them to find out who the hell did this. And in what kind of condition was she in before that? I'm sure she was in shock of being you know, oh, yeah. burned and 100%. beaten. Oh, yeah. 100%. The only thing she was able to mutter was that, take me home yeah. and that was it. So when Katie arrived at Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, she was in critical condition. She was found to have third degree burns from just above above her breasts down to the inner thighs, as well as significant burns localized to her genital area. At this point, Kentucky State Police, Bowling Green Police, and WKU Police were involved in the investigation. They're trying to get together in a powwow of who is going to lead this investigation. It was decided that the WKU police would. 
because that's where they were. Which they were going to take the lead. Yeah, because it's interesting because I don't. I would guess they have the least amount of resources available. But obviously, hopefully, these other you know, police departments are putting in their resources too. You know, they were going to help, but they were in the lead. This case was very much out of what was typical for this force to handle. Sure, this I mean, is a college campus. They're taking a drunken, disorderly conduct and kids. You know, maybe trying sexual to pass assault. Sure, sure. I'm sorry, I just cut you off. I'm so rude. No, just IDs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. you know, minor stuff. Yeah. So this was very much out of their comfort zone. So an aerosol can was located and deemed to be the source of the accelerant. Alcohol gel had been placed inside Katie's genital area, likely to obscure any evidence of sexual assault. So obviously, whoever did this to her was trying to cover any kind of evidence. Whoever did this needs to burn in hell, like for eternity. (sighs) I know. And tragically, Katie passed away three days later on May 7th, 2003. Poor kid. The autopsy was complete that following day, and beside the third-degree burns, Katie's body had also abrasions and puncture wounds on her neck and face, likely caused from the stabbing of a pen or pencil. So this person is an absolute monster. I was thinking the exact same words. Like, how, like not human. <laughs> this isn't something like it got a little carried away. This is an absolute psychopathic mm-hmm. monster. So police started their investigation by putting the pieces of Katie's night together. When police spoke with Danica, she explained the situation that she was staying somewhere else that night. She was leaving Katie home alone. I mean, first thing, you got to look at Maurice and his buddies right, right away. And that's where Danica's like, well, she did slap this dude. Hopefully she told him that right away. Yeah, I'm sure she told them everything. I mean, this is, you know, number one. Number one dude you look at is this Maurice guy. Who would be culpable of doing something like this. And you got to think, you know, obviously the kid that drove her home, he'd be the last person to see her. So I'm, I'm just looking forward to all this information you've got. So she told them about Katie riding home with the designated driver and the eerie phone call where she checked on Katie. She didn't know the driver's name of the, you know, the person from the Pike house that was serving as DD. Because she didn't recognize him? Well, they they quickly found him. So they gave she gave police a description as well as the truck he was driving that night after learning of the two men that were with Katie based on that phone call because Danica heard a second voice in the room. And whether it was the guy that drove them or not, it was a guy that knows she was driven home. Right. So you know, it's the guy that drove her home knows this guy somehow. Right. Right. And if it wasn't him, which you'll tell us. So now police are looking for two people because Danica was speaking to somebody. She heard a second person. And both of them are as equally liable for this this murder. Right. So as Katie's RA, she was speaking with police. She confirmed that she, Katie had come back between about one 30 and 2 AM, which would have been expected. She said she was alone. She seemed to be in good spirits when she came back that she hadn't noticed anything suspicious, nothing that stood out to her. So when Maurice, of course, was questioned, police, um, you know, knew what happened, that they had argued that Katie had slapped him, like you just said. He said he left the party at 2.15 a.m. and caught a cab back on his or to his own dorm where he hung out with his friends. They were watching a slam dunk contest and playing video games until he went to sleep at 3.45 a.m. This was all confirmed. Police spoke with members of the frat to determine who drove Katie home and learned that this was Ryan Payne. Police found him at his dorm. He explained that he had dropped Katie off and she walked in by herself. He did say that he had not spoken to Danica on the phone. He said instead he had gone straight back to the party. He hung out with friends until 5 a.m. This information was corroborated by his friends. 
So during his discussion with police, Ryan indicated that Katie was not the only person in the car that night. He said that he had borrowed another frat member's car. It was actually a truck. And the owner of the truck was passed out, or the owner of the car's friend, I should say, was passed out in the truck when he and Katie got in for him to drive Katie back. Wow. So this friend was this person in the truck, in the truck that was asleep, was 20-year-old Stephen Souls. He is a resident of nearby Scottsville. He did not attend the university. Ryan said he dropped Katie off at her dorm and Stephen was dropped off just nearby. He did see that he walked in the direction of Katie's dorm when he pulled away. Okay. So during questioning, of course, they're bringing Stephen in. Stephen, so he was questioned on May 7th. This was actually tragically the day that Katie died. Stephen indicated that he was blackout drunk that night. He remembers little to nothing of his interactions with Katie. He said that his friend picked him up by the dorms. He went back to his house where he stayed the rest of the night. Stephen's friend was interviewed and he agreed. So this gave Stephen an alibi. He was basically off the table. He wasn't there. So at this point, police seemed to be at a standstill. They continued to find out more about Katie, her whereabouts that night, if anyone would have any reason to want to hurt her. Something between Ryan and Steven and Maurice is somewhere. Like, you know, they're, one of them needs Maurice to crack. was confirmed to be at the dorms with his friends playing or watching a slam dunk contest. They, like, yeah. multiple people corroborated that he was there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But they probably knows the dude that did this. You we'll know, see. like, one of them knows something about something. Yeah. So police learned that Katie had been working part-time. She was dancing at Tattletales. They wondered if this could be a link to her murder. Did she meet some creep in the bar or whatever that was seeing an interest in her? So that was obviously all looked into as well. To me, Danica getting that call, talking to that dude was so important because that dude knew that she was driven home by somebody. And I guess you can say that, you know, you can guess it, but like this guy knew, hey, I drove her home. Oh, yeah. He pretended to be Ryan. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So there were, and then another person there. So there's two of them, I, I'm guessing, unless it was just some noise. But I'm just, I'm just speaking out of my, you know, what I'm thinking. Right. So, you know, they're looking into this place, Tattletales. Um, she had only worked there for a few weeks before her murder, and police quickly ruled this out as a connection. I would agree. So on May 8th, this was the day after police first spoke with Stephen Souls. Um, his friend, or his alibi, I should say, contacted police, and he said that he was up until 4.30 a.m. Stephen was not there. He said... So he changed the story? He said, I, I'm sorry, I lied. I gave him an alibi. He was not with me. Good, 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 Yes. Good. So we're looping back to Stephen now. Okay, thank so God. So police went and searched for Stephen at his family's home. State police were there since it was out of the WKU's jurisdiction. He wasn't there. The next day, it was May 9th, Stephen uh, contacted police himself. He agreed to a second interview. The following day he came in, it was May 10th. He told police that he and a group of friends had also pre-gamed before the frat party when they arrived he was already intoxicated he got sick he went to sleep in the back of his friend's truck he claimed that as katie was dri- uh, driven home he and katie fooled around in the back seat they were making out initially he indicated that he never went up to her room later he did admit that he followed her out of the car and snuck through the building's door before it could close whether he tailgated her into the building or somebody else it's not clear because the ra had seen katie enter by, by herself. herself and in good spirits and mm-hmm. whatever. Okay. 
So he said he told um, officers that he followed Katie up to her room and they had consensual sex. I always say that weird. So he said he knew nothing about the attack. She she was perfectly fine when he left. Uh, You're the one that killed her. Good luck uh, not being pinned with this whole thing, buddy. So, of course, this is 2003. At the time, there was no CCTV coverage of the area, though police did put a VHS tape on the table and labeled it Poland Hall to make him believe that they had him. (laughs) I love that. I freaking love it. So eventually seeing that and thinking that the police had video evidence of him walking in. I just picture. So uh, anything you want to tell us there, Stephen? And they tap on the VHS tape and they're like, um, does this, you know, this probably doesn't look familiar to you, but I can promise you your face is all over this right. tape. Anything else you want to tell us before, uh, before we make it worse on you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so it worked. Awesome. So he eventually broke down and told police that someone made him do it. He said that after he and Katie were done having sex, a stranger entered the room and attacked her. Police did not believe the story. They felt that Stephen knew this person because Danica had heard the voice of two men talking when Katie, when speaking with Katie. As Stephen continued to speak with police, he changed his story again and told them that his friend, 21-year-old Lucas Goodrum, called and asked him where he was. He said, you know, he said he was at Katie's and Lucas had come over and eventually told Katie as they were hanging out that he wanted to have sex with her. When Katie refused, Stephen said that Lucas violently attacked her and Katie tried to fight back. But being a much smaller stature, he easily overpowered her. He said that Lucas threatened to hurt his family, meaning hurt Stephen's Stephen's family, family. if Stephen didn't join in and do exactly what Lucas was doing. So he was basically forced to join in on the attack of Katie. Yeah, you got to join in and murder this girl with me and and rape her. um, Or otherwise, I'm going to hurt your family. That's where you stand up. You say, no, man, I'm going to call the cops and Mm -hmm. you're done. Right. Hell yeah. So that same night, May 10th, police brought in Lucas for questioning. He admitted that he did see Katie at the frat party. He noticed that she was really intoxicated. He said as she walked away to leave, she did rub her hand across his stomach. He absolutely denied having anything to do with her murder. He said he looked for Stephen. When he could not find him, he drove back to his home of Scottsville, arriving between 3.30 and 4 a.m. We know that the alarm sounded at 4.08 a.m., so he would have already been home in Scottsville at that point. So Stephen and Lucas knew each other from high school. They both attended Allen County Scottsville High School. Lucas played football. He graduated in 2000, and apparently Stephen dropped out. In the spring of 2003, Lucas Goodrum was 21 years old. He was not a student at WKU or anywhere else for that matter. He didn't hold down a steady job. He had already been married at that point. He was divorced. He had a young son. His ex-wife indicated that he was abusive to her. And just the day before Katie was murdered, Lucas was accused of domestic violence against his 17-year-old girlfriend. Mm. So apparently his girlfriend told the Scottsville police that Lucas had assaulted her with a cell phone at his apartment. And then later they had gone to the car and he held her down and refused to let her go. So she called the police, but in order to issue an arrest warrant, she needed the signature of her parents since she was a, a minor. She didn't get the signature of her parents, so no arrest was made. Wouldn't ask backwards state. I mean, like if a person's saying they've been assaulted, take them for what they're, they're right. saying. Why would you need an adult? She's 17. Like you don't matter. The crimes on you don't matter unless your parents sign. Maybe still the parents know. 
that they were assaulted, like safety wise. I could only okay. I'll, and and I could see that, but the fact I don't know. And why wouldn't her parents sign it? I, that wasn't clear. Okay, so but anyways, I was wondering about their their histories. Like if Stephen has anything, obviously you just told me Lucas has been abusive. Anything that you know of on Stephen? Uh, no, not really. He okay. just wasn't a go getter. You know, no violent history. He okay. dropped out of school. He wasn't motivated. He didn't really work. Hanging but out other of the than that, no. Yeah. Lucas's mother married the grandson of the founder of Dollar General Stores, and this guy became Lucas's stepfather years earlier. They lived on a ranch, so his mom and stepdad lived on a ranch in Texas. Lucas stayed there until he eventually relocated to Scottsville, Kentucky, to stay with his dad and stepmom when he was a junior in high school. This is when he met and became friends with Stephen. The two often argued, though, because Lucas felt that Stephen was a freeloader and a liar. Their arguing escalated at some point. Stephen told Lucas's girlfriend that he was cheating on her. At that point, Lucas called Stephen, who was of mixed race. I guess he called him a racial slur. So despite all this, they weren't in a good place in their friendship, but they did decide to hang out that night on May 3rd to go to this party together. Guys can let things slide. I guess so. So Lucas remained adamant that he had no involvement in the rape and murder of Katie. His father and stepmother indicated that he was home in Scottsville about 25 miles away from the university before 4 a.m., which, again, was the time that the smoke alarms went off in the dorm, which would have given him an alibi that he wouldn't have been there. And the problem is that anybody can say anything. Mm -hmm. You don't know if they're telling the truth. That's the problem, especially like all these fraternity brothers. You know, they might be backing each other. And then well, he's not part of the university. I'm just giving an example. So like the family, you know, this family's like they don't want him to go to jail. So like, yeah, he was definitely with us. Who knows? I'm not saying that happened. Right. Well, it's just like you said, it's just their word. There was a receipt from a gas station from his drive back home. But, you know, the gas station didn't have video surveillance. Could you prove that this was him that got this receipt? No, you couldn't. So authorities began to believe that Stephen Souls was telling the truth about Lucas, since Lucas did have a record for being violent and Stephen did not. Yeah, but until you uh, can prove that he's there, right. he's, he's not. You know, nobody's saying this guy is a good guy. He was assaulting his 17-year-old girlfriend with a cell phone. But is he capable of doing this? Those two things, you know, you can't necessarily tie them together. Yep, need to have somebody that saw him nearby. Yeah, so on May 12th, Stephen Souls and Lucas Goodrum were each arrested and charged with first-degree capital murder and both fi- faced the death penalty. Both pleaded not guilty under the advice of their private attorneys. Stevens' attorney later withdrew, and he was appointed two public defenders. At this point, the only thing pinning Lucas to Katie's murder was simply Stevens' words, nothing right. else. Which is super weak. And mm-hmm. I'm sure Lucas, based on his grandfather or stepfather's money, probably has access to a decent attorney. He did have access to a decent attorney. They did specify that they weren't necessarily rolling in the dough, specifically in their family. But the point was, he could afford a good lawyer, whereas Stephen could not. Got a public defender, yes. which is you know could be good, but you, know, you don't know. So as the investigation continued, the DNA found on Katie came back. And despite the attempt of utilizing this accelerant, this alcohol gel to burn any evidence, the DNA did come back as a match for Stephen Souls. Yes, I'm, I'm celebrating because we need that smoking gun. Mm-hmm. We need that evidence. There was absolutely no evidence found that linked back to Lucas. Okay. 
So because the evidence against Lucas was lacking, authorities began to question if they could secure a conviction. Absolutely not. All they have is Danica may have heard another voice. Right. And this piece of shit, Stephen, we now know is a huge piece. Although he did say he had sex with her. um, After he lied. Yeah. But yeah. So I mean, then she was beaten and you put that in front of a jury. It's Stephen. Stephen's Mm -hmm. guilty. Right. Yeah. So he, they're talking, they're not sure if they can get, um, you know, Steven on this, or I'm sorry. Lucas. So they question if they can uh, secure a conviction. They decided to offer Steven a deal. Mm. So on March 23rd, 2004, Steven pleaded guilty. So that's where they were talking with him about changing his way. So he pleaded guilty to all charges, which included murder, rape, sodomy, arson, robbery, complicity to commit robbery, and complicity to commit rape. And in exchange, they took the death penalty off the table. So the plea deal meant that Stephen had to testify against Lucas in the upcoming trial for capital murder. So during the trial, Stephen changed his story again. He indicated that Lucas was still the person who attacked and beat and raped Katie, but after Lucas forced Stephen to rape her. So now he's saying he didn't go up and have consensual sex with her. Lucas forced him to rape her. You cannot believe anything Stephen is saying. And Stephen is known to be a liar, yeah. even before this. This he, guy is so full of shit. Like, I don't Oh man. I'm just putting so far the information you're giving me. And if I'm in a jury, I cannot co- convince myself that beyond a reasonable doubt that Lucas is guilty. Right. I think it's possible. I mean, yeah, maybe somebody else was there. Uh, probably somebody else was there. But you can't necessarily say it was Lucas for sure. Agreed. It's so hard. And I know it sounds like Lucas doesn't have a great past, but you can't. So he changed the detail too. that he said that he is the one who used a can of hairspray to light Katie on fire. So he Steven did. Steven said he did it. He lit her on fire. He said he only did it because Lucas threatened him. He uh, so this is obviously a contrast to his previous story of Lucas. He said Lucas was the one that set Katie on fire. He said that Lucas himself raped Katie for more than 30 minutes and that she fought back to no avail. He said he only did what he did because Lucas used him to cover up what he had done. But to recap, Stephen's DNA was the only DNA found at the scene of the crime, and he was now admitting to raping Katie rather than what he initially said. Again, that they had consensual consensual sex. If this was the truth, he would have came out with this in the beginning. Yes. It just so happened that it happens like, support his story somehow a little bit in his demented mind i guess i don't know and not to i'm not saying lucas is completely non-guilty here but i don't see a lot of connection right so you know he's now saying he raped her he's now saying he was the one that set her on fire which ultimately caused her death so you know obviously she had other wounds on her these stab marks to her neck and stuff stuff none of that was fatal it was the burns that she died of. i mean they're still horrible horrible absolutely horrible so you know then of course lucas had that alibi like you said it was only his parents that said so but that was just another thing whereas we know steven didn't have an alibi lucas did like you're looking at the scales and the scales are saying not guilty or at least can't be said as guilty right and then a potential connection came from a jailhouse informant that claimed that lucas had convinced or i'm sorry confessed the crime to him while he was awaiting trial no way i mean you can't take that you know take that with a grain of salt i guess you could say so in the defense closing arguments the attorney his uh, lucas's attorney david broderick made
made sure he reinforced that there was no evidence linking Lucas to the crime. There were no eyewitnesses that saw him come in. And because there is a great reasonable doubt, the jury should find him not guilty. I will be floored if they find him guilty. So after three hours of deliberation, they came back and Lucas Goodrum was found not guilty. He was, um, you know, found not guilty of all charges. He was released after he did spend 22 months in prison. So he said that he had been terrified that his life could have been taken away by just the words of somebody else. Well, I mean, this is going to follow him forever. If you're going to date this dude and you're going to look up his name, you're going to see he was in a a case of being, you know, alleged burning and raping some woman. And then you're going to see that he has a past of assault. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. And a a part of you could believe it, you know, in the back of your mind. And I'm not saying he's not guilty, by the way, either. I'm not saying he is guilty. I'm just saying Mm -hmm. alleged. Like, all this stuff's alleged. We don't have any proof is all we're saying. Right. And Katie's family was devastated by this. They believe that he had gotten away with rape and murder. But jurors indicated that despite questioning if he could be guilty, there was no physical evidence to show that without a doubt that he was guilty. So they couldn't couldn't say he was. The letter of the law, as much as it sucks, the letter of the law supports that. On May 12, 2005, Stephen Souls was sentenced to life in prison without a possibility of parole. Oh, oh, so not Stephen. the death penalty. Yes, because that was taken off the table with his plea deal to testify against Lucas. So he um, is just there for life. He still remains at the Kentucky Department of Corrections. Years later, Lucas was found guilty of domestic violence and terroristic threats against his ex-wife. Terroristic threats? Yeah. Any details around that? No details. Okay, that's interesting. But, I mean, obviously, he's not exactly a uh, stand-up guy. No. We can agree that this Lucas fella is Likes. not... If you if your daughter is looking to date Lucas, definitely send her away and send her some of those uh, articles. Don't put your hands on a freaking woman, you douchebag. So he has since moved to Texas and stayed under the radar living at a ranch owned by his mother. Despite being found not guilty, many people believe that Lucas was guilty. In order to access the dorm, a key card needed to be used. We know that Stephen did tailgate into the building... It says behind Katie, was it? I don't know. If Lucas did come in, it's unclear how he got into the building. We had uh, dorms very similar to this. It was super easy to get in. If you're just somebody that's confident and wants to get in, it's so easy. Not at night, though. At nighttime, you had to have, once it was like 9 o'clock or later, you had to do that check-in desk. Remember, it would be like out the door on Saturday night? Yeah, yeah, out the door, exactly. So you make a big crowd, and all of a sudden, you kind of sneak in. It's like it's... If you want to get in, you can get in. Yeah, true. Now, so, like, nowadays, it's probably a lot harder. They probably let one person in and check them in, mm-hmm. one person in. You know. They should. Yeah. So is it possible that he truly was innocent and Stephen was just trying to point the finger to divert the attention from himself? What about the second voice that Danica heard when she spoke to Katie for the last time? Lucas's parents had given him an alibi after all. Following Katie's murder, Cal Turner Jr., who is the uncle of Lucas's stepfather, the heir of Dollar General, made a $500,000 donation to KWU. Some believe it was simply Lucas's white privilege that afforded him better lawyers and that Stephen was wasn't able to do so. So maybe that's just simply why he got off and Stephen didn't. Obviously, we have the the evidence tying Stephen to it. He admitted 
that he he raped and burned her. Are all those possibilities? Absolutely. Yeah. So on April 25th, 2008, Stephen filed a motion to vacate his conviction, claiming that his defense counsel failed to investigate and interview alibi witnesses. Yeah. Good luck, asshole. And that he was simply pressured to plead guilty. On June 23rd, 2008, this was denied. Katie's murder prompted the discussion of improved campus safety, and the university continues to try to create a safer campus, especially in the dorms. Like, that is your living space. Those are your homes. Yeah, like somebody's individual apartment, you know, living off campus, that's different. But this is, you're expected to be at school, like learning, you know, safety should be all around you. Right. And students must now check all guests in by leaving their IDs with the desk clerk, who then records who is entering the building. Katie's family felt that she should have been safe in her dorm room of all places on campus. That's where she should have been safe. They did file a wrongful death lawsuit against the university in September of 2003. And um, I'm sure you know, they settled. So they indicated that the university failed to provide proper security that could have saved their daughter's life. True, true. In 2007, the Kentucky Supreme Court ruled that WKU was protected under sovereign immunity, which means that the government, a government cannot be sued without its consent. Yeah, basically, you try to sue the government and you can't win. Mm -hmm. And you might get like $5,000. It's like nothing. So reports indicate that in 2009, WKU was found negligent for Katie's death. The Kentucky Board of Claims awarded $200,000 to the Autry estate, which was administered by Katie's mom, Donna Autry, her sister, Lisa Autry and her aunt Virginia White but it's like big deal you're putting 200 grand in your pocket they don't want that 200 grand I, I wouldn't accept 20 billion dollars for either of my kids like you know I would way rather have them I'm sure her entire family would rather have her back yeah of course they would and they just want something to change so that something like this doesn't happen right because it's you know you're sending your kids off to college it's supposed to be a time to like have this fun independence and get your education in the meantime and this happens while they're sleeping in their bed, while they're in their room. In the dorm. In the dorm. It's so sad. So even 16 years later, this was in 2019, loved ones of Katie's gathered at WKU to honor her memory, to raise awareness of her life and her tragic death and what happened. It is their goal to make sure that people don't forget. Some students stopped to ask them about the gathering. Some were familiar with Katie's story. Her family said that they still struggle with the weight of grief in dealing with Katie's death. They indicated that her dorm room was turned into a janitor's closet, which they felt was very disrespectful. They feel that at the very least, the university could put up a memorial plaque remembering her. Instead, there's nothing. So yeah, I get it. Like they don't, they're not going to leave it as a room for people to stay in because you're going to be in the room, you know, that nobody wants to think no. about. But at the same time, it could have been something nicer, I guess. Right. So they will often visit Katie's gravesite as a way of coping with their deep loss. Families say that Katie should be remembered as strong, determined, fun, and loving. One of those genuine people who could have made a difference in the world and changed it if she had only been given the chance. Sound like a fun girl. Yeah. yeah. They'd be great to be friends with. And every picture, she's just, you could tell she's a fun girl. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, what a horrific way to to die when you're trying to get your education and better your life. I mean, any of the stories we bring to the table are horrible, but I mean, this is especially just brutal. Terrible. So that is the story of the murder of Katie Autry. Well, thank you for telling us about Katie. And it just, you know, goes to remind us to be extra careful, extra safe. And, you know, when you're out and about, uh, make the right decisions, nothing that she could have done differently that she should have, you know, you don't expect some, 
random idiot like Stephen Souls to follow you into your dorm room and rape you and set you ablaze. And now the other voice, was it Lucas? I mean, there's a possibility, definitely. I mean, because there was another voice. If they're 100% sure, and Danica's like, yeah, it was somebody different in the background while I was talking to the first dude. I mean, she maintained that she heard a second voice. It sounds like Steven's really only close friend was this Lucas guy. So was he there? Probably. Did Steven like call and say, hey, I got this girl. Remember the drunk girl? Whatever. Who knows? But uh, who knows? I but mean, they, they would found those records. So uh, pr- I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. But either way, he was found not guilty. We can all speculate until the cows come home. But he's living in Texas. So yeah, well, don't date him, ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, he it, at the very least, he's uh, somebody that is okay with uh, abuse. Yes. So all right. Well, thank you for telling us about Katie and her sad story. Um, hey, if we want to say thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoy what you hear, there's an opportunity to get over 30 bonus episodes by becoming a patron. So just look in the show notes right away and uh, go ahead and click on it. Uh, Patreon just came out with a new thing where um, if you listen on Spotify, you can listen directly. So you take the link and link to your patron, and you can get all your shows in Spotify. Or if you're on Apple, uh, Apple, you can do the similar thing, and I'll, I'll post it on Patreon. So. That is helpful because I listen sometimes just to make sure, like um, damage control, I guess you could say quality control QC not not damage control there's no damage to be had but quality control and I I do find that to be a much better option to actually listen to it through your choice of podcasts yeah so um thank you so much and patrons welcome to uh, new patrons Nicole and Sophie you are official members of the crime and coffee couple club thank you so much for your patronage and um I guess that's all we got yes and we appreciate the heck out of you 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 and you and all of you and until next time bye